I'm Kian Wong, and with me is Kirsten Han, the co-founder and editor of regional news site newnarrative.com. Welcome, Kirsten. I was wondering whether you could help explain to us what your presentation is about and uh, why, in some ways, it should matter to people in Australia who uh, usually see Singapore as a slick, problem-free spot in Southeast Asia. I'm arguing that in the Singaporean example, it's actually a case of a government using fake news as a bogeyman to justify passing extremely draconian legislation that allows them more power to control discourse in Singapore. And so I look at the context in which you're introducing this legislation because saying that you want to combat fake news is one thing, but passing legislation that gives the government the power to essentially almost decide you know, what is fake or not in an environment where there's already issues with freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, just simply makes the matter worse. So I argue that in the Singapore case, this fake news legislation is actually bad news and might actually even become counterproductive because it might create an environment where people feel like the government is just using it as an excuse to control them and that actually results in less trust in government rather than more trust in government. And so that's, I think, the context of Singapore. And it's really, I think, should be of interest to to other countries as well because copycat legislation is something that does happen. And since Singapore introduced our fake news legislation known as the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, um, we are now seeing the Philippines trying to bring in something extremely similar. It actually, like, parts of it actually looks like it's just been copied over. And then we've also had, you know, when they were debating this bill, Singapore was pointing at Australia as, oh, look, Australia has brought in um, le- legislation to deal with misinformation and fake news and violent content online, mm-hmm. but not explaining the context of Australia or actually what's in the Australian law. So the government of Singapore has used Australia as one way to justify why Singapore should also have laws. Because look, Australia is a democracy. If they already have laws, we can also have laws. But not explain that actually the two sets of laws are incredibly different. And so I, in my presentation, I talk about what actually is in Singapore's law and why that's of concern to us. And I suppose the other thing about Singapore that makes it a bit special and unique with this law is that its various institutions aren't exact parallels to Australia or Western democracies either, right? Yeah, so Singapore is essentially a one-party state, right? So it's already a problem in that the power dynamics are very skewed. A lot of the power lies in one group in the whole country. And so our fake news legislation gives that group even more power because it's a one-way legislation. It doesn't work both ways. So what's in our fake news legislation? It gives any government minister the power to demand corrections, content removal, or block access to content. And so the government minister makes the order. There is no kind of reciprocal direction. So like, if a citizen feels like something is fake news, there is no way we can apply for an order under this law. Only the government minister makes the order. So it's it's a one-way thing. The government, you know, makes orders against fake news based on their own assessment. And that assessment is not challenged unless 
the person on the receiving end decides that they want to take it all the way to the high court. But there is no reverse mechanism. So if, say for example, if I feel like a PAP government minister has spread fake news about me, there is no way under this law I can go and seek redress, you know. I could write a letter to his fellow minister colleagues and ask them to issue an order against him, but how likely is that in any situation? So that's that's another one, um, the crux of why this law is so problematic because it gives so much power to one side again in a situation where power is already very skewed. So basically what you're saying here is that this law makes the government actually the arbiter, the judge of what constitutes so-called fake news. Yes, so it makes the government an arbiter of truth. How do you, how do you debate it then? There is no debate? No. Well, so they are very careful to say that they are not the final arbiter of truth Mm. because they say you can still go to the High Court and appeal. But how it works is that the minister issues an order and if you are not happy with the order, you still have to comply because failure to comply has possible penalties or fines or jail terms. But if you're not happy with the order, you still comply, but you can write to the minister and ask him to reconsider. And if the minister does not reconsider, then you bring it to the High Court that can um, look at the appeal on very narrow grounds. The grounds are already specified. And then the court may or may not overturn the order. But it means in the first and second instance, the only person who decides whether it's fake news or not is the government minister. And one argument that, that we made when we were opposing this law when it was still being debated was... In a context where the power dynamic... I'm Kian Wong, and with me is Kirsten Han, the co-founder and editor of regional news site, newnarrative.com. Welcome, Kirsten. I was wondering whether you could help explain to us what your presentation is about and uh, why, in some ways, it should matter to people in Australia who uh, usually see Singapore as a slick, problem-free spot in Southeast Asia? I'm arguing that in the Singaporean example, it's actually a case of a government using fake news as a bogeyman to justify passing extremely draconian legislation that allows them more power to control discourse in Singapore. And so I look at the context in which they're introducing this legislation because saying that you want to combat fake news is one thing, but passing legislation that gives the government the power to essentially almost decide, you know, what is fake or not in an environment where there's already issues with freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, just simply makes the matter worse. So I argue that in the Singapore case, this fake news legislation is actually bad news and might actually even become counterproductive because it might create an environment where people feel like the government is just using it as an excuse to control them and that actually results in less trust in government rather than more trust in government. And so that's, I think, the context of Singapore. And it's really, I think, should be of interest to to other countries as well because copycat legislation is something that does happen. And since Singapore introduced our fake news legislation known as the Protection from Online Falsehoods and Manipulation Act, um, we are now seeing the Philippines trying to bring in something extremely similar. It actually, like, parts of it actually looks like it's just been copied over. And then we've also had, you know, 
when they were debating this bill, Singapore was pointing at Australia as, oh, look, Australia has brought in um, le- legislation to deal with misinformation and fake news and violent content online, mm-hmm. but not explaining the context of Australia or actually what's in the Australian law. So the government of Singapore has used Australia as one way to justify why Singapore should also have laws. Because look, Australia is a democracy. If they already have laws, we can also have laws. But not explain that actually the two sets of laws are incredibly different. And so I, in my presentation, I talk about what actually is in Singapore's law and why that's of concern to us. And I suppose the other thing about Singapore that makes it a bit special and unique with this law is that its various institutions aren't exact parallels to Australia or Western democracies either, right? Yeah, so Singapore is essentially a one-party state, right? So it's already a problem in that the power dynamics are very skewed. A lot of the power lies in one group in the whole country. And so our fake news legislation gives that group even more power because it's a one-way legislation. It doesn't work both ways. So what's in our fake news legislation? It gives any government minister the power to demand corrections, content removal, or block access to content. And so the government minister makes the order. There is no kind of reciprocal direction. So like, if a citizen feels like something is fake news, there is no way we can apply for an order under this law. Only the government minister makes the order. So it's it's a one-way thing. The government, you know, makes orders against fake news based on their own assessment. And that assessment is not challenged unless the person on the receiving end decides that they want to take it all the way to the high court. But there is no reverse mechanism. So if, say, for example, if I feel like a PAP government minister has spread fake news about me, there is no way under this law I can go and seek redress, you know. I could write a letter to his fellow minister colleagues and ask them to issue an order against him, but how likely is that in any situation? So that's that's another one, um, the crux of why this law is so problematic because it gives so much power to one side again in a situation where power is already very skewed. So basically, what you're saying here is that this law makes the government actually the arbiter, the judge of what constitutes so-called fake news. Yes, so it makes the government an arbiter of truth. How do you, how do you debate it then? If there is no debate? No. Well, so they are very careful to say that they are not the final arbiter of truth mm. because they say you can still go to the High Court and appeal. But how it works is that the minister issues an order And if you are not happy with the order, you still have to comply because failure to comply has possible penalties or fines or jail terms. But if you are not happy with the order, you still comply, but you can write to the minister and ask him to reconsider. And if the minister does not reconsider, then you bring it to the High Court that can um, look at the appeal on very narrow grounds. The grounds are already specified and then the court may or may not overturn the order. But it means in the first and second instance, the only person who decides whether it's fake news or not is the government minister. And one argument that that we made when we were opposing this law when it was still being debated was in a context where the power dynamics are already so skewed and there is a climate of self-censorship and fear. How many Singaporeans would go all the way to say, no, I'm going to take this minister to court. 
over what a Facebook post like even to activists who are perhaps more likely to bring something to court to come out with the money and the time and the energy mm. over a Facebook post mm. most of the time people will be like I've got better things to do you know mm. so there's, there's no check and balance in the system it essentially makes a government minister an arbiter of truth so the law says that they go after false statements of fact but a false statement of fact is defined as a statement that is false or misleading so it's just this whole tautological kind of oh it's false if it's false because what you're also saying and suggesting here and because the Singapore state has had a previous reputation for almost bankrupting its critics mm-hmm. through the courts is that to mount any challenge to this over fake news is going to be very expensive. During the debate, um, the law minister has, has said in parliament that they can make it faster and cheaper. But how fast and how cheap is not yet clear to us mm. because he said that it's going to be in the subsidiary legislation. So the main bill has passed, but the subsidiary legislation, which doesn't need to be passed in Parliament because it's an administrative piece of legislation, has not yet been finalised, so no one has seen it. So he's promised that, oh, in the subsidiary legislation, we can carve out processes that make it more affordable and faster. But we don't know what that actually looks like. That's just his promise at the moment. I see. Yeah. How, how does this seem, then, you think, to the wider... Singapore population when this seemingly very heated debate was taking place. I mean, some of us have seen clips of a very combative law minister against some of his critics. How is this actually received in the so-called People Actions Party heartland, HDB flats? Is this an issue? I don't think it's actually that big an issue. I think they might have heard of it. If they've seen the papers, it might have some impression of hearing of it. But I don't think it's something that a lot of people would specifically spend too much time thinking about um, because it just feeds into this general sense of the PAP government already controls everything. The PAP government already controls parliament. They can do whatever they want. So what's the point? Because you're not going to win. So that's a sort of sense that I think some people have. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Singaporeans actually are not aware of what's in the bill, which would be very typical for Singapore because the sense is that if the government can push through whatever bill they want, then your opinion is irrelevant. So a lot of people kind of switch off on those grounds. I've had dialogues with university students on the issue of fake news where there are some very engaged students, but then there are also some students who are like, well, why do you ask for my opinion? My opinion is so irrelevant in Singapore. The government does what it wants. That then becomes a problem because it's an obstacle to getting people to think about these issues. It's also an obstacle when the education system is again set by the government that's again dominated by one party. So the education system leaves out things that might lead you to be a bit more sceptical of the government. So it leaves out, you know, historical instances of detention without trial. It doesn't talk about the bankrupting of opposition politicians and things like that. So if you're a young Singaporean who has just been through the school system and it's not yet occurred to you to go and look for more information yourself, basically your impression is that Singapore's government is a highly efficient, clean government that does not abuse its power. And if that's what you believe, then you don't worry about these legislation at all because you trust the government to do what's right. So in some ways, this fake news legislation is actually an idealised 
Singapore state expression for the 21st century, isn't it? Because it's always been a state that is very acutely conscious of managing its perception. Yes. And uh, it's had to, in some ways, sell itself not only to its electorate, but also to the region at large, that it is a place where everything works. Mm -hmm. And there is far less inequality than, say, in its neighbours like Mm -hmm. Malaysia or Indonesia, Mm -hmm. where inequality is such more glaring, uh, where everyone is very happy with the public housing and the the very high rankings that Singapore education has. So all of that feeds into that the yeah. discussion you have. So so this is a you know Singapore's government is a government that's very very aware of controlling the narrative and the importance of controlling a narrative. It's not enough to run the country, you also have to run the PR. Mm. So Singapore's government is very aware of this and so they they very often want to find ways where they can they can be the agenda setters. They set the agenda instead of having to respond to criticism. I don't see them using this legislation a lot. I think it's going to be more their style is very targeted against particular people. The saying is, you know, you you kill a chicken to scare the monkey sort of thing. So as you target it against particular people and that would allow them a bit more control, I think, because one space that they haven't really been able to figure out was social media. So, for example, they've had regulations that regulate news websites, mm-hmm. but a Facebook account is not a news website, mm-hmm. so you can't. Uh, this anti-fake news law, I've heard some people describe it as a Facebook law because the legislation is worded in a way that it doesn't need to be a news website, it doesn't need to be a company, it's very targeted mm-hmm. to... Um, it can be a tweet, it can be a Facebook post, so it it would have application to you know, social media influences in a way that previous laws that targeted blogs and you know, independent news sites don't. Because, of course, these huge tech giants that we're talking about, mm-hmm. the Facebooks, the Googles yeah. of this world, they, of course, are headquartered regionally in Singapore. Right? Yes. And so they see Singapore as being a critical part of their growth and Success yes, too. and they are in a way locked in because they've made so much investment. So, for example, Facebook has built mm. massive data server centers mm. in Singapore. So, they are unhappy about this fake news legislation. But is it going to be enough for them to say, I'm going to take my data center and leave after they've poured so much money into building it? It's a kind of conundrum for them. And also so much of Singaporean political discussion happens on Facebook these days. You know, even ministers and government agencies put their statements on their Facebook accounts before they put it on their websites. So I can see the attraction of wanting to control that space. Basically, what you're suggesting is that the tech companies themselves and even the new challenges to that will all necessarily need to fold in with the state's uh, legislation the state's regulation? Well, the, the companies will have to comply. There are specific sections of the legislation that's very specific to these companies. So, for example, if they don't comply, sometimes the fine could go up to $1 million. So then it comes down to what does Facebook value more, mm. being in Singapore or freedom of expression? Is the Singaporean market more valuable to them or Singaporeans as users? And so I'm not very confident. Like, I know that these tech companies did also try to resist the law. And, 
you know, were speaking out against it, but I'm not very confident that at the end of the day, the Googles and Facebooks won't think that the money is more important than, than freedom of speech in Singapore. Mm. But I think it's going to create a sort of cascading problem for them. Because if you give in to Singapore, if a Singaporean minister can tell you to take down things, then on what grounds do you resist the Hungarian prime minister or the Turkish president telling you to take down things? On what grounds do you resist China telling you that your Facebook should be moderated if you want to come to China? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's going to be an ongoing problem for them. It also doesn't help that, you know, the particularly Facebook hasn't helped its own case by failing spectacularly in places like Sri Lanka and Myanmar because then the Singapore government points at that mm. and says, look, Facebook has been complicit in genocide in Myanmar. That's why you cannot trust Facebook. You must have the Singapore government come in and regulate Facebook for you. Before they came out with the law even, they had this select committee to kind of talk about what it should be. And Facebook went and testified before the select committee and was grilled for about four hours. It was actually reported around the world in a sort of, yeah, Singapore, give Facebook what they deserve. And that's true because it was the the first big grilling Facebook got the weekend after Cambridge Analytica broke. And yes, Facebook should have their feet held to the fire, but it created this whole opportunity then for an authoritarian government to then say, well, if we can't trust social media to regulate themselves, I will do it for you. It also fits into the narrative of many governments in the region where the state actors, the governments, are actually accountable, whereas these tech giants are not. Yes, It's not a fantastic choice for citizens who are also users of platform, right? So it becomes a, who do you trust more or less? Do you trust your government to deal with your data and your online discourse? Or do you trust an American corporation that doesn't necessarily care about you with your data and your discourse? So it's it's not a great choice either way. But when the government is authoritarian, it has particular very direct impacts on the citizen. Sounds very bleak. Is that the Singapore conclusion? I I think a lot of the Singapore conclusions tend to kind of end up this way because of just the huge practical stranglehold on power that one party has. But I think there is more questioning, more talking. So one thing that, that came up was like, you know, well, we didn't stop the bill from getting passed, but we made this topic of self censorship and the chilling effect and freedom of expression. Um, very front and centre in the discussion in Singapore. Maybe not among all Singaporeans, but certainly among Singaporeans who are more aware. It became on the agenda. The government had to respond to these criticisms in a way that had to first accept that there is self-censorship as a problem in Singapore, where before they would not even have acknowledged that self-censorship is a problem, but now they are like, you know, it's not that bad, which means as a first step, they have to first acknowledge that there is a problem. These are now things that we discuss and we are aware of. And I think last year's Reuters Institute study found that about 62%, 63% of Singaporeans that they surveyed said that they were concerned about what they post online because they are afraid of repercussions if they post political content online. So this is already now an acknowledged problem in Singapore. At least that's a first step. Finally, do you think this debate actually has a great deal of impact on the type of democracy that Singapore is becoming, given that you actually have the general elections very soon. 
Yeah, so no one knows when the general elections are. It has to be before, I think, April 2021, but um, right. people think next year. Uh, some people think this year, but it might be too rushed at this point if we don't know. I think there is a kind of sense that, you know, maybe we need more opposition in parliament. That That's the thing that a lot of Singaporeans have said often. The degree of how much opposition in parliament is, is a matter of debate, but there's some agreement that there should perhaps be more opposition in parliament. I think some Singaporeans kind of saw that because they were like, look, so many of us were unhappy about it. And still the bill passed, and that is a problem of representation in parliament. Of course, there are a lot of other factors, like old PAP members coming out and setting up new political parties. The Prime Minister's younger brother is taking pot shots at him on Facebook. There's a lot of other factors coming in, but I think you know there's some discussion in Singapore about do we need a change and what sort of change should it look like? So the likelihood is that we may not necessarily have business as usual going forward. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about what this next election will result in because 2011, it looked like there was a wave of more opposition and then it it kind of completely regressed back to the PAP in 2015. So there's been discussion now about Which one was the fluke, 2011 or 2015? Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.